You can be opening your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll read once again verses 1 through 8. This morning I will attempt to finish up my series of lessons on the essential doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've been studying for a number of months now. And last week we began to consider the requirements to be in the bride of Christ, knowing that that company is a place of reward for those Christians who live faithfully. All of God's children will have a home in heaven, all have eternal life, but as a reward for faithful living as a child of God, doing the will of God in this life, there is this offer of sitting with Christ in his throne as a joint equal heir. Not all Christians will have the same place in heaven. All will be happy. All will have a a glorified body, but there will be those that are closer. There's differences between Christians in this life, and those differences will also be seen in heaven. There are different ranks in the resurrection. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 about different glories in heaven. And so we have found that the motive that we should have wanting that place is not out of competition, not of trying to be better than someone else, not to just have power, wealth, and glory, but because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, because he, he gave his all for us, laid down his life for us that we might have eternal life. And so in response to that love, we respond with a service of love to him as well. Now we use this, Paul's, the, the summary of Paul's life that he describes himself here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. We used it as an outline for what kind of life, what are the requirements to obtain to this highest place in glory? What, what is it that God requires of us? And so let's read this, this passage again that we read last week, but we'll continue where we left off in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and beginning at verse 1. 2 Timothy, we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Talking about Christians. Not every Christian, not every assembly, not every local church preaches these things that we've been studying over these many months. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. They will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us what makes us feel good. Doesn't matter whether it's the will of God or not, whether it's according to the Bible. Just tell us what we want to hear. We certainly see that among Christians today, don't we? Verse 5, but you, don't follow that pattern, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. The Lord had revealed to him he was going to die for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, of course, he did. But he says in verse 7, and this is the outline, the summary that we want to use 
to summarize, what are the requirements to win Christ? As Paul said in Philippians 3, I have fought the good fight. We considered that last week. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, not just a robe of righteousness, which all Christians have, all that have put their faith in Jesus, but the crown of righteousness, the, the pinnacle of doing what is right in God's sight, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give, me, give to me on that day. Well, of course, he's the apostle of the church age. Of course, God's going to give him a crown. But he says, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There again is that foundation motive. Why would we fight the good fight? Why would we run the race? Why would we keep the faith? Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're looking for him to return. Things are not going to remain the same. And we have seen again, once again, with uh, the events in the Middle East, we see how quickly things change. In a matter of hours, the situation, the global situation changes. In our personal life, things change. Jesus is coming. If not, Jesus is a liar. He promised he's coming. It may not be in our lifetime, but he is coming. And we are to live as if he's coming today. We love his appearing. We're looking for him to return. And so because of that, we see in these three things that Paul mentions here, we, we can use those as, as the main categories, and there are many things that branch off from that. Last week, we looked at the fact that we need to fight the good fight of faith. And we looked how a, a soldier, an athlete, a wrestler, when they're fighting, obedience is necessary. Obedience, an athlete needs to listen to their coach and learn how to do the fundamentals. Obey. You may not understand it, just do it. A soldier certainly has to follow orders or, or the whole plan of battle and to win the war. It's, it's, it's not going to work, so you have to obey. Alertness, be alert, be aware that there's an enemy out there who wants to disturb you, who wants to keep you from, from winning this place and robbing God of his glory. Be alert. Be prepared. Put on the armor of God. We looked at, at those requirements and characteristics of a good soldier and a good wrestler. And then lastly, the one that we don't like to talk about, but it's, it's one that is mentioned over and over again. If you're going to do the will of God, those who will live godly will suffer persecution. We have to be willing to suffer, be willing to make sacrifices. We live in a Christ-rejecting world. And so if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to do what pleases him, guess what? The same world that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not going to like you very much. Now, that doesn't mean we try to make ourselves unlikable. Quite the opposite. We are to live peaceably with all men, according as, as much as depends upon us. But when you truly do the will of God and you stand up for what's right in his sight, there are going to be those that oppose you be willing to suffer. So now we'll pick up where we left off and we'll look at the next phrase that he uses here. I have finished the race. He uses an analogy of a runner. And this is an analogy that, that's used several times in scripture. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 24 to 27. And we find that one of the essential virtues of a, a successful runner, a professional athlete who who participates in track and field, an Olympian, 
one of the main virtues that characterize a, a runner is discipline. Discipline. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9 and verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, remember, the subject is not salvation. Salvation is presented over and over by Paul and all the other writers as a free gift by grace, through faith, apart from works. That's free. But this is winning, obtaining a prize. So this is a reward for Christians who run the race well. Well, what does it mean to run well? And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, self-control. Now, they do it, athletes, natural athletes, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. In Paul's day, the Greek Olympians, they, their reward was literally a wreath around their head that in a week disintegrated. But they dedicated their entire life to win that race to get that wreath, a perishable crown. Today, there's gold and silver and bronze. But in the light of eternity, that will also perish. But we for an imperishable crown, an eternal reward. Therefore, because that, that prize is set before us, therefore I run. He's talking about how he lives his life. This life is a race course. It's set out a track. It has lanes and you've got to follow the path or you'll be disqualified. You've got to stay in your lane. That's why I was never successful at, at track because my, I have feet to go out like this and I kept violating the lane, just running down my path. You have to stay in the path. Everyone who competes, uh, verse 26, therefore I run thus not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about losing the opportunity to have the highest place in glory, to win Christ. A disciplined Christian life is one that is dedicating yourself to the things that, go, that are going to cause you to live righteously. A runner, there's a discipline. They discipline their body. They literally, there are things that it, they make their body do, whether their body wants to do it or not. There are things that they abstain from. Most professional runners, you probably won't find them smoking cigarettes. Why? Because it's going to negatively impact their ability to win, to breathe. There are things that they dedicate themselves to in the natural, just to win some perishable prize. How much more as a Christian should we be willing to dedicate ourselves to the things that are going to cause us to know the will of God and to do the will of God? And how much more should we abstain from doing the things that are going to hinder us? Too many times Christians have the thought, well, you know, the preacher says I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't, you know, and I, I just want to have fun like everybody else. And I think God's just trying to make me miserable. For Christians to have that attitude towards God's loving instruction in his word is to fail to understand God's love and his grace for you. He wants me, he wants you to have his best in this life and in eternity. 
That's why he gives us the instructions that he does. What are some of the things that will promote us winning the race? Studying the Bible. If you're going to do the will of God, you need to know the will of God. This is why so many people that say, you know, Brother Doug, this doctrine thing, you, you just get oh, go overboard on it. Let's just love one another. Let's just love God. And I've said over and over again, I can't love you like I need to, like I should, if I don't know what love is, divine love. And the only way that I can know how love is to manifest itself is by knowing what God's instruction is. There are times the best way for me to love you is to confront you with the fact that, you know, this is not this action, this relationship, this thing that that you're doing. It's not in your best interest and it doesn't bring glory to God. And sometimes that brings shame and makes you uncomfortable. And the Holy Spirit does the same with me when he convicts me of things in my life. It doesn't feel good to have conviction, but it's the love and the mercy of God that says, this is going to hinder you, put it aside, and this is going to enhance your life that will be rewarded with God's best in eternity. Bible study, prayer, assembling yourself together, serving others, focusing on the, the needs of others rather than your own needs. The opposite of love is, is selfishness. Life is all about me and how I need to be happy. Well, if you really want to be fulfilled in life and enjoy contentment and peace and joy, you serve others. It doesn't sound like it should work that way, but it's real. Dedicate yourself to those things. Be thankful for and in all things. And that's a tough one. Again, the reason I wasn't successful in running because I didn't like, you know, that runner's high they talk about. That was uh, running out of breath and about dying. Uh, you know, I really wasn't interested in that. And so I never reached that runner's high. But those things that we dedicate ourselves being willing to do the things, even when it doesn't sound right, give thanks for all things. This trial I'm going through, this loss, this tragedy, how can I give thanks for that? The only way you can is by believing what God says. It's working something in you and for you for eternity, that it works for you and not against you. The Bible says that, you know. And the only way that you can, we don't have to say, Lord, thank you. I enjoy pain. I do not like pain. I do not like suffering. But I can, by faith, say, Lord, I thank you that you love me with an everlasting love, that you're always looking for what's best in my life, not just for the moment, but for eternity. So I thank you for what you're doing. Even though I don't know what that is yet, I know you will show yourself faithful. That's how you give thanks. That's how you discipline yourself. We also abstain from anything that's going to keep us from doing the thing. Let's go to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Abstain from things that are going to hinder you, relationships that are going to keep you from dedicating yourself to prayer, to assembling yourself together, to studying God's Word. Relationships, habits, activities, associations that keep you from doing the things that you should that's going to enhance your walk with the Lord, abstain from those things. That's what the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race 
that is set before us. Paul in Paul's day, the runners in the Olympics literally ran naked. And in our day, in our Olympics, they pretty much do the same thing. And it was, obviously, to cut down on any resistance that would keep them, that would slow them down from winning the prize. Spiritually speaking, we need to strip our life down to only that which is pleasing to the Lord. Looking unto Jesus. Oh, there's the secret. How can I live such a disciplined, sacrificial life? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Why, why did Jesus? And, and again, when we talk about the cross, we, we kind of talk about it so easily. But the cross, the, just the physical aspects, not, not, not only the, the spiritual battle that took place on the cross, but Jesus, as the Son of Man, suffered the torture of the cross. And you read sometime the, the history of the torture of the cross. What would make Jesus be willing to do that when he knew he didn't have to? He could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him and to destroy everyone. As the soldiers were nailing his hands, he could have had them struck down dead. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. He suffered. What made him do that? And then, of course, there is the, the spiritual battle that we'll never fully understand. He was the sinless son of God, and he took upon him the sin of the whole world. This is why in the garden he, was, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. I don't think it was just looking at the physical torture. It was the fact that the one who had never known sin was going to bear the guilt of my sin. We'll never fully enter into that. What made him willing to do that? There was a joy set before him that he endured, it says, endured the cross, despising the shame. He says, I don't care, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I am that joy. You are that joy. You're the reason he was willing to do that. How can we not love him? How can we not serve him with all of our heart when he gave his all for us? This thing of being the kind of Christian, it's not a matter of, well, I have to do it because the pastor said I have to, or I just try to do my best. No, it's a matter of falling in love with Jesus. It's not trying to convince you to do what's right. It's just, I love him. I don't want to bring him reproach. I don't want to offend him. I, I want to please him in all that I do. Fall in love with Jesus. Those who love his appearing, they're going to be awarded the crown of righteousness. Are you willing to live a disciplined life? Run the race with patience, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Another mistake some runners make is as they're running and they think they're about to win and they, they, they want to make sure. And so they'll look around and in looking to see where everybody else is, guess what? They've just lost a step and somebody blows by them and wins. Now ours isn't competition with one another, but the same principle applies. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at your trials. Don't get distracted by others around you. Don't get distracted by all the injustices of life. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Yeah, so-and-so mistreated me, but Jesus didn't. Yeah, things are hard, but the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And when we, all of us have fallen from time to time on this racetrack, and anyone who's run on a cinder track and, and fallen, 
Uh, it's not pleasant. We've all been scraped and bruised. But the thing about this race is we can get up and refocus. And so when you've fallen, when you've been distracted, just get up and follow Jesus. He hasn't given up on you. Don't give up on yourself. The last phrase he says in his description of his life, the summary of his life, is I've kept the faith. It literally means to guard it, to guard truth. One of the reasons that I've dedicated my ministry, and from the very beginning as a young person, the Holy Spirit impressed upon me, and, and I've always been more of a teacher than a preacher, because the Holy Spirit's impressed upon me, God's people need to know the will of God. And that only comes from teaching sound doctrine. You read Paul's epistles, and how many times does he use the word doctrine, which simply means teaching, sound doctrine. And one of the reasons that I felt so f- impressed that it's, it's so necessary to be faithful to proclaiming truth, it matters what you believe. It's not enough to just to say, I love God and I'm a Christian. Christ- Christendom is full of apostasy, error, things that contradict the will of God. But, it, but it's under that umbrella of Christendom. But it matters what you believe. It matters what a local church teaches. Now, once again, we're not the source of truth. We're not boasting in ourselves. But it does matter what you believe. It matters what you support. It matters what you proclaim. First Timothy six twenty and 21 Paul spent his adult life since coming to know Jesus Christ, teaching others this gospel that was revealed to him, this, these truths. And so he says in 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, as, as Paul was getting ready to end his race, as he knew he was about to die, he made it a point to emphasize to Timothy and to Titus and those younger, younger men that were following him. He says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be to you. Amen. Paul was faithful to guard that truth that Jesus had revealed to him and that he gave to Paul to give to us in this church age. Now he says, Timothy, now you guard it. I've kept that faith. I've kept that revelation of truth that we are to believe and to follow. Now, you do the same. Brother Freestone used to say that a local church, an assembly, is only one generation away from apostasy. He used to say, how many remember that? He used to say that. Why? Because if the next generation doesn't lay hold of these essential doctrines and teach them to their generation— then God's people begin to believe any fable, any story, anything that tickles their ears. This is why it's so important, and I, this is why I believe it's one of the requirements. You don't have to know Doug Crook. You don't have to know Abundant Grace Fellowship to win this place. You do have to know his word, and you do have to keep it. First of all, by living it, and secondly, by sharing it. Second Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, I've kept the faith. And now it's the responsibility of the next generation. And this is what I tell the young people 
in this local assembly. Now it's your, your turn to step up. I remember as a young person, and as some of the older ones begin to pass away, I thought, what are we going to do? Oh, things will never be the same. My pastor died. God didn't. Jesus didn't. They're still alive. They're the same. His truth is the same. The same truth, the same faith that my great-grandfather had. When the Lord called him into the ministry and, and had a wonderful ministry where many ministers came out of, of his local assembly and, and went all around the country, that same faith and that same truth that he taught is the same truth I'm teaching. And it's been real in my life just as it was in his life. I don't worship my great-grandfather. I thank God for his heritage he left me. But I worship the same Jesus. I preach the same truth. And now it's the next generation's turn. Paul in Acts 20, we won't read this whole passage, but you can read it later, uh, verses 17 to 32. But the apostle Paul, knowing he was about to die, in fact, he was on his way to Rome to have his head removed from his shoulders. But in verse 20, if you're scanning the passage there, notice how Paul, he was talking to the elders at Ephesus, those that were going to be responsible for other congregations, pastors and teachers. He was talking to this group and he says, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. Whatever God had revealed to him, he shared it, even if it was unpleasant or something that he knew some people wouldn't like. He said, I've held back nothing. I've told you everything God's told me. Verse 27 of that same passage. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Do you, do you know there are some churches you go to and all you will ever hear is a salvation message? Now, I thank God for that salvation message. And it is the message, the only message we have for the world. But when God's people come together, those that have already accepted Jesus Christ, they need to be fed so they can grow spiritually. And so Paul says, I've declared to you the whole counsel of God, not just the beginning, not just the, the good, favorable, tasty parts, but I've given you the whole counsel of God, verse 27 says. And then verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, to feed them, to protect them, to lead them, which he purchased with his own blood. And then lastly, in verse 32, so then, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. Doctrine matters. What you teach matters. What you believe, what you support, what you proclaim, it matters. That's why these essential doctrines were so important for us to be reminded of. I'll finish up with, with an important thought, because when you look at all of these requirements, it seems a little daunting, doesn't it? Oh, Brother Doug, I, I can't be that kind of Christian. The mistake that a lot of people make when you talk about winning Christ and having his best is, well, you're talking about Christians that never fail. You're talking about being perfect all the time. Winning Christ is not a matter of being a perfect Christian, because there are none. Not in the sense of sinless perfection. And so if, if Satan is tempting you to think, well, I can't be that kind of Christian, so why do I even try? Satan's good about that kind of temptation. This highest place in glory, that's, that's just for old people. I want you to know something. An example. I'll give you an example here. I've got an illustration here. I call, call this my forever jacket. 
because Christy made this for me over 40 years ago. She used to do a lot of sewing. It's perfect, isn't it? I also had some pants that were in weather, but I did wear the. <laughs> Nike didn't make this. My wife did. And she was a good seamstress. But I also remember there were times as she was making this and other projects that I would hear some grunting and groaning going on in the sewing room. And she was ripping out entire seams that she had just spent time on. Because when she did it, and then she looked at it, and then she went to the pattern. It wasn't like the pattern. And so rather than saying, oh, well, and just going on, she ripped it out. And she did it then according to the pattern. So this perfect jacket that she made, it took time. It took patience. And when she was ripping out seams, you did not want to be in the same room. But it took time. She made mistakes. But she went back to the pattern and made the corrections. That's how you live a Christian life. That's how you're going to, to win Christ. We read in our study that the bride has made herself ready, and she was, it was granted, it was given to her the privilege to wear a wedding dress. And that wedding dress is the righteous acts of the saints, doing what's right in God's sight. And those who will be granted that privilege to wear that, that wedding dress that simply is illustrating that they did what was right in God's sight. It's not because they never failed to do what was right. It's because when they failed, they took the grace of God and they admitted, and this isn't according to God's pattern. I'm going to turn and leave that thing. I'm not going to make excuses. Oh, well, doesn't matter. It matters. Rip out the seam. Call it what God calls it. And then go back to the pattern that God's given for your life, and you'll find restoration. He'll put you back on that path of righteousness. Saints, you can live. If I didn't believe that I could live this kind of life, because I know my failings. If I didn't believe it was possible for me to win Christ, I wouldn't preach it, and I wouldn't pretend I could obtain. But I believe God's grace is sufficient for me. I believe he loves me enough that when I fail, he's going to convict me. I thank God. I don't like conviction, but I thank God he doesn't leave me to my own devices. A good parent is going to do that with their, their child. Lord, help us, this next generation's being raised without discipline. Or do whatever your imagination allows you. You be yourself. You tell your truth. There's one truth. And I'm glad that my father loves me enough that when I fall short, he disciplines me. And he loves me enough to pick me up where I've fallen. And says, you can still have my best. Let's go back to the pattern. God wants this for you. You need to desire what God desires for you. Let's have a song in closing.